Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back with you with another fantastic interactive class. I know that we uh, we did not have one last week because I was traveling from East Coast. Uh, I was out in Rhode Island and then went all the way up to Michigan for Michigan Paracon back here this week, a day later than we usually do it because, well, you know, that day job kind of gets in the way sometimes. And next week, I do let need to let everybody know that that will be another off week for us because I will, once again, be traveling. This time, I will be out in L.A. Uh, filming a, a television episode. Well, actually, two television episodes. So be on the lookout for more information about that. Um, I can tell you it does have to do with uh, ancient, esoteric, and mysterious stuff. And it might just also have to do with uh, some maybe UFOs and aliens, too. So you guys can kind of piece that together. <laughs> All right. So tonight's topic is supernatural hotspots. And this is you know related to some of the material that we've been covering here lately. But we're going to get actually get into some uh, specifics here with this. And so I posted the question. At which hotspot have you experienced the most supernatural activity and what happened? I did get a few responses. I did not check here within the last maybe 30 minutes to see which other, if there were any other uh, comments that came in on this. So if I missed yours, I do apologize. Uh, first one is from Michelle Hamilton. She said, Gettysburg. I've heard things on the battlefield, smelled 19th century cologne twice along Hospital Row in the town had photographic evidence at the Ginny Wade house. Yeah, uh, Gettysburg is definitely one of those hot spots for paranormal activity. I mean, really, it's that, you know, terrible energy that has been ingrained into the land from, from that battle that was there, that absolutely bloody battle. So then we have one come in from Instagram. This is from Rendlesham. So basically a reference to the Rendlesham Forest, which was a famous UFO incident out in uh, out in the UK in 1980, which uh, we've had Jim Penniston on Edge of the Rabbit Hole a couple of times. When we did Edge of the Rabbit Hole, which is no more, uh, great guy, fellow uh, fellow mate from the Air Force. So, uh, but this is not Jim, <laughs> and I, I'm not going to. He, he actually gave a specific address, which I'm not going to read off. But basically, it's in uh, Stewarton, Irishshire. Irishshire, Scotland, Whew, try to say that. He says, we moved in and left nine months later. The house erupted, me and my ex-girlfriend and her kids, from things moving in the middle of the night to a full-blown apparition, like a real solid person appeared between both of us, then disappeared. So I'm going to have to look up specifically where in Scotland that is. Uh, of course, Scotland has a lot of fantastic ancient history that goes along with it. There's a lot of uh, Templar history. But then you also have uh, stone circles and the like out there as well. In fact, Freddie Silva has a uh, fantastic book uh, out on ancient Scotland right now, which I've started, but I've had so many other things going on. Um, I haven't completely dove into that yet. Then there is Victoria Monday, my co-hostess from Edge of the Rabbit Hole, which we just mentioned. She said, well, that would have to be my new house here. Smoke alarms going off, smoke filling the house, then disappearing. Smoke alarm, ITC, shadow people, shadow cats, bumps on the wall all night long, door slamming, and I'm in the house alone. 
So Victoria's had a lot of strange things going on in her new house. And uh, we do hope her cat Toby is, is doing much better. He's been in the hospital several times lately, finally home. So Toby, stay well, please. All right. So uh, let's see if we have some opening comments here. Um, all right. Uh, we have been to some hot spots, but the spot also seems to be me. And you get that sometimes too, where you do seem to be uh, an attractant to some of this different activity, like you're almost a beacon for it. Not necessarily going to get into that this evening. Um, that is a topic we have covered in the past. And it is something we will cover again. So, all right. Let's go ahead and get into, first, let's kind of define a hot spot, all right? So these are areas of the world which are seemingly more energetic in nature, where we receive a greater than average number of reports of what, uh, paranormal activity, UFO activity, sightings of other strange phenomenon, uh, could be cryptid sightings, fairies, light beings, light anomalies, all these different things. And there seems to be more of them in certain areas of the world. We've kind of covered a lot about, um, you know, like ley lines, stone circles, of course, the pyramids and things like that. We're gonna talk about some other locations here. And um, and I saw that there were some uh, questions in relation to this. I know Jen asked about Sedona uh, for the monthly Q&A. So feel free to throw some more questions down for the monthly Q&A. That's for August, you know, September 1. I'm going to get that video out this weekend. So ones that are more geared toward like ley lines, stellar currents, uh, that sort of thing. Time travel, we also talked about. Uh, throw those down into the monthly Q&A question for those that are members of the Connected Universe portal. All right. So, yeah, these would be uh, some of these are like uh, vortex areas, triangle areas, anything that's seen a plethora of anomalous activity. I said we're going to get into specifics. So we're going to start at a location that's been really popular lately, and I'm not talking Alaska Triangle. I will briefly cover Alaska Triangle, but I've talked a lot about the Alaska Triangle uh, throughout our classes, and that is a popular topic. But we're going to start with Skinwalker Ranch out in the Uinta Basin in, uh, in Utah. I will say I've not yet personally been there. Uh, my buddy James Keenan, who's done some work out there, has been on the uh, Skinwalker Ranch television show. Keeps telling me, Mike, when you when you coming out west again so that I can get you out there? I'm like, man, I just, my, my schedule is busy and I haven't been able to make time for it yet. But I do want to get out there one of these days. It would be an absolutely uh, fantastic place to explore. Of course, uh, the current owner is Brandon Fugel, who's a, uh, he's a Utah real estate entrepreneur. Prior to him, uh, it was owned by uh, Robert Bigelow, an aerospace engineer, and they were actually, you know, trying to do some scientific tests out there. And that's kind of, you know, Brandon's thing, along with the television show now, to um, to do these very, very public investigations. And Travis Taylor, uh, who's also you know, on Ancient Aliens, uh, aerospace engineer as well, uh, it's basically heading up that investigation. Of course, they have several people involved with the ranch out there. Uh, that are that are working with that. So let's, before we dive into the goings-on at Skinwalker uh, Ranch, let's first define what in the heck is a Skinwalker to begin with. So basically, Skinwalkers are a Navajo legend, and they are reported to 
be out there on the ranch. They are shape-shifting entities that live in and amongst the Navajo tribes. They're originally a medicine man or a shaman who has basically chosen an evil path, takes on the form of an animal to inflict suffering on others. So shapeshifters, uh, shifts a shape from man to beast. Now, in order to become a skinwalker to begin with, the shaman must be initiated by a secret society of other skinwalkers. So you have to get approached by another skinwalker shaman. And one of the requirements is to kill a close family member, which is really, really tragic. But that's it's kind of like the whole selling your soul sort of thing. So skinwalkers wear the skins of the animals they transform into, which is why the Navajo insists that the tribe not wear the pelt of any predatory animal. So any you know, regular person within the tribe, they're told don't wear the pelt of any predatory animal like a wolf or something like that. So that we know you're not a skinwalker. So now these things are supposed to have very special uh, abilities like mind reading, controlling thoughts, the ability to jump high cliffs. They're supposed to be able to outrun cars so very, very fast. So they're able to, uh, or said to be able to control other night creatures such as wolves and owls that can do their bidding. And they're said to also be able to reanimate the dead to attack their enemies. So many believe that uh, encounters with skinwalkers will actually generate curses and those who actually cross their paths will suddenly suffer from bad luck, nightmares, and uh, other health problems. So in these cases, what you would do if you think that you have crossed the path of a skinwalker is then you would reach out to your, uh, your Native American, or I guess in this case, Navajo shaman, uh, to perform a ritual with sacred smoke and ward off bad energy uh, that has been given to the victim of the skinwalker. So really, really nasty, nefarious type of creatures. Now people you know, have asked me, okay, are they kind of the same thing as a Wendigo? No, and I know some people, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, people debate this back and forth. It's just like, look at the descriptions. Um, so with the skinwalker, you know, shapeshift, you know, come from a human to a um, wolf. You know, think of werewolf, right? Uh, sort of a thing. And then you transform back into a human afterwards. The people don't know that, you know, you're the, uh, uh, that you're the skinwalker. So you're kind of hiding amongst the tribe. And then when it's your time to become the skinwalker, then you transform. Where with a Wendigo, this is more of like your your zombie sort of thing. They're also, Wendigo are more toward like the Great Lakes region in, in Southern Canada rather than uh, in the American Southwest. So with, with the Wendigo, you know, to become one, you get bitten by one. Uh, and the Wendigo makes a choice for some reason to, uh, you know, to instead of eating you, uh, to transform you into another Wendigo. And when you are transformed into the Wendigo, you you are it. You are that for ever. Uh, you become you know very emaciated. You're kind of hiding out in the forest, and you are eating other human beings. So that's where it's kind of like zombie-ish, right? And there's some unfortunate, tragic tales of. Um, we won't get into all of that. 
I have a video out on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel about that of the tragic tales with the Wendigo. But uh, we're talking skinwalkers. I just want to kind of give a brief. This is what the skinwalkers are. The reason why uh, it's called Skinwalker Ranch has to do with a curse from back in the 1800s. So it was a uh, 1864 land dispute between the Navajos, the Utes, and the U.S. government. The Navajo ended up becoming forced out of the area, blaming the Utes for helping the U.S. government. In turn, the Navajo cursed the land and called upon the skinwalkers to populate the area. And since that time, skinwalkers have been said to roam the desert uh, prairie. There have been cattle mutilations. People who dig on the land have been known to become extremely sick. UFOs are commonly reported, and cloaked beasts have been seen running across the land. The buildings on the uh, on the property are supposed to be very very haunted so yeah kind of a uh a nasty setup and these are things that are actually reported there on the ranch they have many many ufo sightings there are people that believe that ufos are like inside the mesa but they see a lot of activity up in the sky uh, when there has been digging on the land strange things happen to people uh, there are a lot of strange things that happen around the buildings on the property. When they talk about Homestead 2, uh, which is kind of an abandoned area, there's a lot of strange things that, that have happened out there. We'll get into a couple of those things. I want to see your comments here. Uh, so, uh, Sarah, use of high intensity and concentration, emotional energy are common in areas of high paranormal activity. We'll get into a little bit of that. Yep. All right. So let's get into what's going on there now. What's been the what's been the ballyhoo with uh, with the television show? So I mentioned before. Okay, it was purchased by Robert Bigelow in 1996, basically off of some uh, you know, people who are actually you know using the the land for as a ranch. Uh, he wanted to uh, operate uh, scientific studies on the ranch because he'd heard a lot of, about the unusual activity that was there. Had it for 20 years, sold it to Brandon Fugel, like uh, we, we previously previously stated. And of course, they've been running the television show out there ever since. So if, if the show is accurately portraying what's going on there, and again, it's, you know, it's television. So, you know, there, <laughs> there are always things that make you wonder, okay, did this really happen? Are they only showing us a, a piece of the whole thing? Are they elaborate, or I'm sorry, uh, are they, uh, you know, kind of exacerbating what their findings a little bit? You always kind of wonder that. And, and I've been on some of those shows and um, I know how they kind of push you for the dramatics and, it's, you know, but, um, but the couple of people that I know that are involved are, are pretty legit. So, you know, so I, I trust most of what's going on there. And you see some of the footage and in, in, in what's been happening there. So let's talk about some of that stuff. So there's been a lot of electromagnetic interference. They've had uh, malfunctioning navigational equipment, bizarre activity around the Mesa, which is what you're looking at here. This is the, uh, the photo that you're looking at. And then they have a lot of strange activity around what they call the, the triangle area. Uh, triangle and there are an extraordinary amount of uap sightings there and 
I've been watching the television show and following along. It seemed like in season three, there were a ton of the UIP sightings. And what's interesting is they've been trying to generate it. What I mean by that is they have discovered this kind of pocket of air that has, it's, it's above that triangle area that I was just showing you there. And for those that are listening to the podcast later, I know you can't see the uh, the photos that I'm showing, but uh, you know, please join us every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m., connecteduniverseportal.com. Participate within the chat. See the, uh, basically it's a slide presentation. And uh, a lot of times we also run video clips so you can be a full participant in that. And then, of course, also get access to all the other videos and articles and wonderful things within the Connected Universe Portal site. So, uh, so yeah, they have this uh, pocket of strange air, really, that's uh, high above the triangle area. They've basically kind of triangulated a point above there, um, which seems to react to a lot of the anomalous activity. Now, they've flown through it. And when they have flown through it, um, like the, the one was season two, the one helicopter that they sent through it, you know, all of a sudden the altimeter is going nuts. Um, just very, very unusual activity. You know, it's reading as if they're near the ground. You know, they're thousands of feet in the air. It doesn't make any sense. You know, they'll they would drop things out of the uh, out of the helicopter, and the things would go off in unusual directions. They're shooting rockets up through there. And the rockets take off in strange directions. It's very unusual indeed. And any time that they do things like that, when they try to interact with this, whatever energy is hovering there in the air, it's not long after that all of a sudden they have some sort of UAP sighting. And what I mean by that, so UAP, um, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, which is a different term than unidentified flying object, UFO. And basically, they assign UAP these days. That for whatever reason, about 20 years ago, they decided we need to make a distinction between an actual aircraft in the air or flying craft, like flying saucer, and other things going on, like light anomalies and things like that. So that's kind of what they're seeing. They're seeing these large glowing balls way up in the air. Sometimes they have a little bit more mass and structure to them. And so there's a handful that they've called UFO. Um, to me, they should just call it, you know, they could call it USA, unidentified stuff in the air. <laughs> because it's all, it's all unidentified. They don't know what it is. But when they interact with this strange energy that seems to be there, these sorts of things happen. Uh, they also have uh, this strange signal that seems to be broadcasting pretty much like out of the mesa. And it's a, it's a 1.6 gigahertz signal. Now, again, some people believe that there's a UFO buried in the ground. So they kind of go to not the show, but theorists say, well, you know, maybe the UFO is broadcasting the signal. Okay. Um, some believe that there's an asteroid in the ground. That's, that's certainly possible, of course. What's also interesting, though, is 
there's this stone circle out there as well. Now, aha, uh -huh, we're back at our stone circles. And we've been talking about that quite a bit, right? Um, coming back from, from Ireland, we talked a lot about Drombeg. We talked some about uh, Grange and the energy that's at these stone circle locations and where they were using the, the stones and the structure of the circle to harness that power. So you see that the ancients here, you know, already knew that there was a power there. And there are petroglyphs. We looked at some of the petroglyphs in the area uh, the other week that have that uh, that have that spiral, that swirl pattern, and are uh, showing depictions of of portals. And the the natives from that area would talk about the star people, and the swirl or the spiral pattern was basically their depiction of that portal that the star people would use to come to earth. And so that's right there. So what's going on here with, with this energy that's there with, you know, all of these uh, strange anomalous activities that are happening in what we call a supernatural hotspot. All right. I see some comments are coming in here. Um, oh, okay. And so I guess Anne is in the house. She must be coming in as the Facebook uh, user here. So great. Thank you for joining us this evening, Anne. And uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of questions about this particular area. Sarah's asking, does the high quartz or other mineral content in the soil contribute to concentrating energy? Um, it does. So that's something that we've talked about a lot when it comes to uh, to triangle areas or kind of those um, when we talk about the telluric currents, when we talk about when they cross those nodes of energy uh, that are really uh, conductivity discontinuities. That's kind of like the, uh, I guess, geologist term for it. And basically what's going on is uh, from the Earth's magnetic core, that vortex energy that's rising up through the ground interacts with those different minerals and metals and things like that and creates different activity. So that's essentially what I think is happening uh, at Skinwalker. And there is some unusual metal that they have found there. So here's a couple of bits of it. They drilled into the side of the mesa. Now, I do have a little a little qualm here. When they tried to send, they, they drilled this like 400-foot um, tunnel. I mean, it's only a few inches wide uh, into the side of the mesa. They pumped a couple thousand gallons of water in there, so it's extremely muddy. They tried to send a rover in there, and they couldn't get it in there more than a couple of feet. Well, because it was muddy. And this is where, and every show does it, when they when they make things very, very dramatic. And they're like, well, you know, there's something keeping it from, you know, going into the hole. It's, yeah, the mud. You know, even though it has the, um, you know, the rubber grips on there, that's right, it's, it's too muddy. <laughs> so that one, like, okay, guys. But it is unusual what they pulled out of there, this, this metal. So, you know, what is within that cliff 400 feet in that's pulling out little metal shards like this? Now, 
my original thought was, well, maybe there's an old mining operation there. Because you have these stories of there was a there was a cave that was in the side of the mesa and ended up getting covered up. Okay, well, there's mining that's been in the American Southwest for, you know, hundreds of years. So was this part of that mining operation? The problem with that is, I mean, for one, it's extremely, extremely thin what they're pulling out of there. So it's not like, you know, railroad tracks, like for carts and things like that. Um, you know, could it be the side of some piece of machinery? Eh, maybe, but that's really thin. But there are uh, traces of two different metals on there. And one is on one side, one is on the other. You know, they're not mixed. Uh, one is tellurium, and they're both very rare uh, types of metals. One is tellurium, which is a brittle, and you can see that this is brittle metal. It's brittle, mildly toxic, it's rare, uh, it's a silver white metalloid. It's uh, more common elsewhere in the universe than Earth. Now, how how they know that, I have no idea because we have not really been to a lot of other planets within the universe to really know that. But there's not much here on Earth. Um, the The amount of tellurium available on Earth is a, comparable to about that of platinum, which platinum uh, is more rare than gold. So, um, so this is a pretty rare metal. The other side is europium. Uh, again, one of the rarest of the rare earth metals. Its hardness is similar to that of lead. So it's kind of malleable. What's interesting is um, it's used for what we use it for. Uh, we use it uh, in lasers and other optoelectronic devices. It's used for red phosphor in uh, the old CRT television sets. It's also used in fluorescent lamps and as an activator for phosphors. Oh, and uh, when it comes to tellurium, they're used in solar cells, infrared detectors, and uh, cadmium, cadmium telluride solar panels exhibit some of the greatest efficiencies for solar cell electric power generators. So we see these metals used in some very, very sophisticated type of electronics um, in, in our society today. So what it's doing there, you know, within the Mesa on Skinwalker is anyone's guess. Now, those aren't the only two metals it was made of. They're on there, which makes it very unusual. And they're on, one's on one side, one's on the other. But there's also magnesium uh, within this metal. There's um, manganese also within this. Uh, those are a lot more prevalent than the uh, tellurium and the europium. But the fact that they're both on there is very, very strange. Now, the question becomes, because we don't know how much is within the mesa. You know, they're just, this is just a sample. This is just a core. Uh, basically drilling that they've done. So then the question becomes, because we've talked about, okay, electromagnetic currents coming up out of the earth, interacting with different metals and minerals. Is that what's possibly causing either some of this activity or maybe even this signal that's being broadcasted? You know, is what's coming up out of the earth for our general magnetism because that's all over the earth. That's that's the way the earth works. Um, you know, when it hits this stuff, 
is that's what's causing the strange activity. And I tend to, at this point, I'm leaning toward yes, um, at least in part. You know, I think there's probably a lot of strange metals and minerals and things like that down there. Um, since there were mining operations in the area, um, you know, they could have been mining out parts of what's causing this activity as well. You got to remember this, this part of the world um, used to be underwater millions of years ago. So what do you have left over from that part of the Earth's history that would have been in this area? So let's see what you guys have for comments and questions. Um, yeah, meteorite. Uh, okay. So the question, and this is from Sarah again, uh, the question about meteorites, because that has come up. The problem is with the sample that they had, if it was a meteorite, you would find um, generally more iron, more nickel, and more iridium. And they didn't find those. So that leads you to believe, at least from this particular sample, this is not a meteorite. It's not from a meteorite. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a meteorite buried somewhere else there on Skinwalker, but this sample that they pulled is most likely not a meteorite itself because they didn't have those other elements that you usually see uh, when meteorites hit the Earth. And Alina asked, Mike, have you read the book Forbidden Science? I saw it in a video recently. Looked interesting. Um, you know, somebody else has uh, recommended that to me recently. Um, God, who was it? It's irrelevant who it was. Um, but no, <laughs> I am not yet. Uh, There's so many books I'm in the middle of. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm in the process of reading like three or four different books. I got a stack over there uh, in the living room on the coffee table. I've got a couple of books sitting on my nightstand. I've got a bunch of audiobooks lit, uh, loaded up. It's kind of nuts. So, all right. So, um, all right. So, magnetism hitting the metal causing different anomalous activity. Now, one of the things, again, that was interesting to me um, about all of this is the strange navigational problems that they've had. All the issues that they've had with devices, and, and not just the uh, you know helicopter in the air. They've had strange things going on on the ground with electronic equipment, cell phones, um, cars and vehicles just doing strange things. Of course, the um, things that they put in the air act strange. Uh, a lot of weird things happening. And as I keep hearing more and more of the stories and keep watching what's going on, it's become more and more eerily familiar to all the stories I've heard about the different triangle areas of the world. You, know, you look at something like the uh, Bermuda Triangle. I'm not going to do a whole huge thing on the, on the triangles because we've done this before. But you look at the Bermuda Triangle and something like Flight 19, uh, you know, very, very infamous, uh, tragic incident that happened there. They still have not found Flight 19. And, uh, and these gentlemen here who presumably have perished, you know, the last we heard from them, they had, they had turned north. They, they had completed their first leg of their run. It was just a training run. They had completed their first leg turned to the north, and then all of a sudden, 
they had strange uh, compass readings. Their compasses started acting very, very odd. Then, uh, and they're trying to get things corrected, make sure they're on the right course. Then all of a sudden, a storm kicked up out of nowhere. Um, you know, they trying to dodge a storm. Compasses still aren't working properly. They're reporting seeing different things uh, on the ground. At one point, they thought that they were over the Keys. Okay, now, um, you know, the Keys are at the southern tip of Florida. They had been, <laughs> they had been traveling due east out of um, Fort Lauderdale and turned to the north. So why in the world are they suddenly re reporting that, hey, I think I see the Florida Keys below me. I mean, that's way off course. It doesn't make any sense. And then the last uh, anybody ever heard from them, they were they were talking about if things didn't improve, they were going to attempt a water landing. Never heard from them again. Even one of the rescue planes, when they took off, gone. Never heard from again. A nearby, I say nearby, um, they were at least close enough to observe a fireball in the sky, which they believe may have been that rescue plane, but they had sailed off and they kind of radioed uh, U.S. military. So a ship comes through the area, other planes kind of circling, looking for, okay, where's this search and rescue plane? Never found anything. There's nothing floating in the water. Nothing was ever found in the ocean. Totally gone. So was it that fireball? You know, or was that something else? You know, what happened to the search and rescue plane? So very, very bizarre stuff. And of course, we've seen similar things in the Alaska Triangle as well. So when we look at a, uh, you know, a tragic story like the, the Princess Sophia. Now, you know, this is a story in which the captain of that ship, now this is October, okay, Flight 19 was December 1945. The Princess Sophia, October 1918. You know, this is one of those where um, storm kicks up, uh, you know, massive blizzard. It's in October. It's Alaska. It happens in Alaska. Now, the captain of the ship, Captain Locke, very, very familiar with the area. And he knows that when you're going through this, you know, the Lynn Canal, he knows that there's a reef right in the middle of it. So he would stay to the one side. And he talked about, you know, staying in deep water. Well, somehow they end up on the reef. And this photo here is as close as anybody could get to it. You can see the, uh, the script on the bottom, stranded on Vanderbilt Reef, October 24th, 1918. So they're stuck on the reef. You can see how violent the water is. And, you know, there's, there's snow coming down. The winds were extremely wicked. You know, it was just, it was just a mess, and the rescue ships could not get there. You know they, um, you know they criticized Locke for not attempting more of, you know, an abandonment of the ship. But the problem was, was you know any of the, um, um, you know, little boats, the, um, you know, the rafts to try to get off of uh, the Princess Sophia the term I'm looking for, they would have crashed right back into the reef. And in fact, when they found the wreckage later, that's pretty much what happened is, you know, people that tried to get off in the lifeboats, 
the lifeboats crashed into the reef. But what happened is kind of the question, why did he end up on the reef to begin with? And we don't really know for sure. You know, there was never any communication of why they ended up on the reef. But again, knowing that how he had made this trip hundreds of times, knowing how well he knew that canal, there's no reason why he should have ended up on the reef. Well, stormy conditions. They said it was whiteout conditions. So they can't see in front of them at all. So they're left to their instrumentation. And, you know, is it something like what happened with Flight 19, where all of a sudden the instrumentation went crazy? So they couldn't, you know, properly guide themselves along. And boom, they ended up on the reef. And we're seeing that same thing, you know, with, with Skinwalker Ranch. They're up in the air, you know, above the what they call the triangle area. And the altimeter, altimeter is going crazy. You know, they're, they're getting all kinds of crazy navigational readings. It's not correct. And in fact, when you look at, um, you know, they have all these different devices recording data and all that. And then you look at what was recorded and you're seeing this, you know, crazy path that doesn't make any sense. Something was interfering with the electronic, the electronic components. And so then that also brings us to the, um, you know, Douglas Skymaster in the missing airplanes in the Alaska Triangle. You know, is this what happened to them? You know, of course, that gets taken a step further into, okay, you know, not only was it a problem with their electronic components, but did they also pass through some sort of portal into another dimension? You know, we see this, you know, with with Bruce Gernon down in the Bermuda Triangle where all of a sudden he says it was like an electronic fog. And basically a, he guided the plane through a tunnel that was you know, kind of like this, uh, that they show with the Douglas Skymaster here from the Oscar Triangle television show, where it's just this swirl of clouds. It's a tunnel of clouds and you're flying through it. He guided his plane right through that. And when he came out on the other side, Miami was below him, which he should not have gotten to yet. He uh, basically traveled 100 miles in three minutes, which, you know, his little Cessna plane uh, is not supposed to fly that fast. You know, is that what happened to, to Boggs and Baggage, the 1972 plane that went missing in Alaska? Again, never to be found again. So we're seeing a lot of this strange electromagnetic activity at these different hotspots that create this energy, this um, this field, I guess is what I should say, this strange field that interacts with the environment, that interacts with electronic components, that interacts with possibly even space-time in these areas and creates these different effects. You know, you have something that's more, you know, rather than supernatural, something that is uh, more concrete, like the Princess Sophia, where the result is you end up stuck on a reef and you end up perishing. Then you have other things that happen, like Bruce Gernon, where you have this, uh, this tunnel that opens up and you're suddenly, you know, almost like teleported from one part of the ocean to another. Uh, you know, did, you know, was it a, 
some sort of traveling through time or was he propelled forward um, or was he teleported or something like that with the uh, douglas skymaster of course i've proposed that you know if they did uh travel through another dimension to another point in time did they end up you know back in time say and i always throw out the uh the idea of 500 years ago and what would the natives have thought of an airplane if they saw it 500 years ago because they would have no context for it so maybe that's where some of the thunderbird legends come from so you have some other uh, comments and questions here um so let's see so does the area have a high concentration of magnetite um that I don't know. I, I don't know the exact uh, chemical composition of the land. Um, you know, they, uh, I'll have to look into that for you. But, um, I mean, they get all kinds of strange electromagnetic uh, readings. I know they've been geological surveys. I, I would, uh, off the top of my head, I don't think so. Because um, then people could just instantly say, oh, it's the magnetite. That'd be too easy, right? So, um, so off the top of my head, I'm going to say no. All right. So this brings us, of course, we 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 kind of hit this a little bit um, the other week. The vile vortices by Ivan T. Sanderson. Uh, Sanderson, his primary occupation was a biologist. Uh, he wrote several books on on animals and nature, but he also had a profound interest in the paranormal and the supernatural, and so. Uh, he founded the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained. And in 1972, he published an article in Saga magazine called The Twelve Devil's Graveyards Around the World, which is what he ended up calling vile vortices. Now, many of these fall inside the Tropic of Cancer uh, on one side and on the other side, uh, the Tropic of, of Capricorn. And then... The other two are the North and South Pole. But when you put it all together uh, as a geographic shape, it's an uh, icosogon, which is a 12-sided polygon. And so this is when we start getting into sacred geometry. Okay, so I look at that, an icosogon, and uh, you know, 12-sided polygon, and I'm like, Oh, it's a 20 sided die in Dungeons and Dragons, you know. <laughs> let, me, let me roll a 20 and, and win the battle, sort of thing. Uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting that he's essentially put the earth together like that. Now, uh, what's interesting to me is that okay, he has a couple of the triangle areas here Devil's Triangle, Bermuda Triangle. Uh, he's got Easter Island on there, which is interesting, in a lot of other interesting locations in this river. But not something like, you know, the Giza pyramids don't fall into this. Um, you know, the American Southwest, like we're already talking Skinwalker Ranch, Sedona's a hot spot. Uh, that doesn't fall into this. Of course, we've been talking the Alaska Triangle. That doesn't fall into this. So, you know, I think it's interesting. I think it's part of the answer. But I didn't think, I don't think that he had it all now what's interesting is um next wednesday when i'm on camera i have to talk about his bio vortices and uh and ivan t sanderson he did some he did some good work um he, he laid the groundwork for a lot of uh a lot of this study so I, I think he had the beginnings of what we've been getting into here 
So, and then, uh, you know, like with the Dragon Triangle, um, you know, out near Japan, it goes, you know, off into the, uh, uh, off into the Pacific Ocean. Very, very large. But the legends here go back you know, thousands of years to the time of Kublai Khan, where, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, twice he launched invasions to Japan only to have both fleets become, they got completely destroyed in these storms that would kick up and would wipe out the fleet. They ended up calling the storms kamikazes, you know, which we know from the kamikaze pilots from World War II, but this is where the term uh, basically originally comes from. And so you have some very unusual, fascinating things that are happening. But the ancient Chinese talked about, you know, there being dragons under the water here. Now, around the same time that things are going on with the Bermuda Triangle, again, we're seeing, okay, vile vortices. You see this connection here between Devil's Triangle, these other locations in the Bermuda Triangle. Connected universe, right? So around the same time that we were having the unusual things happen in the Bermuda Triangle with Flight 19, out in the Dragon Triangle, you had like all these fishing boats going missing. What's happening to them? So then in the early 1950s, the Japanese government sent out an expedition, uh, Kayomaru number five. And there's 22 people on board, a bunch of scientists, and they never came back. You know, all that was found was some drifting wreckage. That's it. They have no idea what happened to them. And this was their investigative team to go find out what's happening there. Gone. And so the Japanese government said, yeah, we're, we're calling that, that area of the sea off limits. We're calling that extremely dangerous. You can go out there if you want, but you know, we, we recommend that you don't. Bizarre. Even your investigative team goes missing. So um, we've seen a lot of these uh, triangle areas start to pop up. Like people are very, very familiar with Bermuda Triangle. And um, when I've been at events like this past weekend in Michigan, Michigan Paragon, and you know, I'm talking about okay, the Alaska Triangle, and I'm selling my book. Now I've, I spoke there about the uh, about the shadow people, but as people are coming to the table and they see the Alaska book, several of them are familiar with the show, which is great. Uh, but some of them are like, wait a minute there's an Alaska triangle and they don't know that there are many triangle areas around the world. They're familiar with Bermuda. Bermuda, it's a marketing thing. So when all these unusual things are happening around Bermuda, there's a book that came out, he called it the Bermuda triangle and that's how the name uh, stuck. People weren't calling it triangle areas before. But now since Bermuda's caught on, you know, the Alaska triangle for a long time was called Alaska's Bermuda Triangle, which is kind of silly, uh, before they just started calling it the Alaska Triangle. But then you have these other locations, Bridgewater Triangle, like Michigan Triangle, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about them before. But like when we were out in Ireland, uh, we were at Charleville, they were talking about, yeah, there's a triangle area here. And like, what do you mean? Well, between us and Lep Castle, and I forget the other location that they mentioned, I wrote it down somewhere. Um, there's like, there's a triangle here. There's a lot of unusual things that happen within this area. Oh, okay. Um, talking with uh, 
with somebody from France the other day, and they mentioned that there's a triangle area out there in France. Oh, wow. Okay. So all these different, it seems funny that, oh, now all these triangle areas are starting to pop up. And it's not that they're starting to pop up. They've always been there. We're just starting to actually name them. It's kind of like the whole thing with shadow people. It's not that shadow people just suddenly start popping up. You know, the phenomenon has been happening for thousands of years. It's just that now we have some nomenclature to go along with it to be able to kind of categorize things. Oh, I, you know, I, I'm just finding out about these shadow people or, oh, I'm learning about these different triangle areas. Well, that happens over here too. So is this also a triangle area? Yeah. Okay, but it's not always contained to a triangle area, right? Jeez, you have five minutes or 10 minutes. It's a lot of material here. So we've talked about the Conjuring House before. Um, Harrisville, Rhode Island. So I'm sorry if I kind of you know dragged out some of the other parts. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, so we've talked about a bit about the Conjuring House before. This is a hot spot paranormal uh, location. Uh, it's been opened up for paranormal investigations the last couple of years uh, since it was purchased by the Heinzens, and now it's been uh, sold off. I, I forget the owner's name now, but still open for uh, the investigations and research and all that. And so, you know, what's powering what's going on here? Um, you know, extremely, extremely haunted location. Stories have been coming out of there for, for decades. Um, you know, and, and I've captured stuff like this, which I call interdimensional phasing. You see, like, beyond that door, everything shifted to the right, where everything in the foreground uh, is completely still. And there's a lot of things that have happened in that room beyond. Of course, a lot of things have happened throughout the entire house. You know, and some people say, well, it's the land. Okay, sure. You know, there's been a lot of uh, Native American activity on the land. Um you know, is there something within the, you know, the structure of the ground? Um, you know, you probably have to drill into it to find out, you know, the exact metals and all that. Um, but when it comes to the house specifically, you know, you have in the basement, the well room. And I think a lot of what's going on there stems from that. And you can kind of create this and, you know, the ancient Egyptians and other cultures would create different things like this and, you know, the stone circles and things like that. But in the conjuring house specifically, you have the well room. So it's a there's an open hole in the ground. It's a well, still filled with water to this day. And um the walls are made of limestone, and then they're capped with granite blocks. And it's like a perfect little power plant to generate this type of activity. So directly above there is the parlor where you know, the most notorious thing that happened from there, Carolyn Perrin had seen the uh, the time slip happened right there where, you know, she had seen the whole family. The two uh, gentlemen turned and looked at her and said, well, would you look at that? Um, so you had that right there. A lot of other things happened in the area, but then directly above is uh, Andrea's old bedroom. And the middle bedrooms had a lot going on too. But, um, you know, this is where uh, shadow smoke has been witnessed several times, um, you know, apparitions, uh, you know, strange energy. I mean, I almost passed out in that room when I was in there. And then, of course, you know, this crazy energy that you're seeing in this photo. So a lot, a lot of things going on in that house. Hot spot. Okay, let's move out to the Midwest. I have a few minutes here. 
uh, one of my favorite locations, Mineral Springs Hotel, Alton, Illinois. Um, you know, wonderful, wonderful location. Uh, very historic. It's been around for over 100 years now. But basically, they built it on top of, they, they were drilling for fresh water uh, because they basically it was a meat packing company. Uh, they wanted their own ice house because they were otherwise using the caves up the road uh, to keep things cool for their, uh, for their meat. And so they wanted to build a nice house. They drilled into the ground to get fresh water. They ended up with mineral water. So then they decided, well, we're going to build this hotel. We'll get the mineral baths uh, going and bottle the water and sell it and, and all of that wonderful stuff. Great. So you have, again, an open well into the ground that has these different minerals. And I forgot to plug in the computer. Great. Uh, so I got the low battery warning. But it's right on uh, the Mississippi River for one. You have the limestone bluffs uh, right on the uh, the east side. They're right basically almost up against the hotel. It's like a couple blocks and boom, you get the limestone bluffs. Right down the road, you have the Cahokia Mounds, which, you know, ancient, uh, it's the biggest pyramid uh, north of Mesoamerica. Uh, it's a fascinating location, lots of energy there. And then right up the road, of course, you have the, the Piasot Caves that we were just talking about. So, you know, that's a that's a sacred site to the, to the Native Americans. And of course, I have to show this photo here because this is uh, Coyote Chris and I. It, it's, it's about one year right now since he passed away. So I wanted to make sure to show this photo. It's also behind me uh, up there on the wall. I think it's this photo here. Whoops. There we go. Um, but yeah, we're right there by the uh, the well, which you know basically has a bunch of junk thrown into it. It's the old cistern. So yeah, you have a lot going on there. It's a hotspot of all kinds of paranormal activity. Of course, you have the the sacred site there with with Cahokia. So there's a lot of different things going on at this location. You know, a variety of different UFO sightings. I mean, yes, the Conjuring House has. Um, yes, things have been seen out there in the skies around Alton and along the Mississippi River. Um, of course, Skinwalker Ranch definitely, uh, Bermuda Triangle, Alaska Triangle, Dragon Triangle. All these hotspot location. All these hotspot locations seem to have. Uh, this different type of activity where whether it's UFO or UAP, we have to, I guess, differentiate between those couple things now. Um, paranormal or supernatural activity, cryptid sightings, all of these different things. And I want to touch on real quick before we wrap it up, um, the idea of ultra terrestrials. This, there we go. And basically what this is, and we were, you know, we talk extraterrestrials. Okay, because we've been talking UFOs and UAPs. So extraterrestrials would be uh, those entities or beings that are non-human that come from some other planet in the cosmos. Or maybe they even come from a moon. They always say, from some other planet. Maybe maybe it's not a planet. Maybe they come from a moon, right? <laughs> uh, but in any case, come from some other celestial body in the universe. So an ultra-terrestrial, however is indigenous to planet Earth. They are from the Earth, but they exist on a plane that we don't normally interact with. So what we mean is some other dimension, maybe a parallel universe, some other plane of reality 
that they are coming from, but they're still here on the planet. And it's possible that these different hotspots that we've been talking about could be doorways for them to enter into our plane of existence that could be an easier way for them to get from one dimension to another. And I will say easier way because we've seen in places all over the world, you know, where time slip could be happening or, you know, we witness a, a ghost or an apparition or a shadow person and they could absolutely be coming from some other plane of existence or some other dimension. Um, but it could be that the doorway for them to come in is one of these locations, or maybe it's just easier for them to come into the, one of those locations rather than, you know, somebody's house that may not be like the first shadow person experience I had when I was a kid. Um, I don't think that's within any sort of, you know, hotspot, anything. It was like the only thing that ever happened at that house. Um, there may have been one other thing when I was younger. It's hard to know. But it wasn't a hotspot location. But was something able to, it might have been harder for some, for that thing to get there. You know, or maybe it came in through one of these doors and had traveled there. But in any case, the idea that there are other beings on this planet that we don't normally see with our own eyes and we don't normally sense and feel, but they're around and they're operating within some other plane of existence around us. And the energy at these locations could be providing a way for them to come in and out a little bit more freely. And so those would be our ultra terrestrials. Some people would call them interdimensional beings, but I think it's one of those with an interdimensional being is a little bit more specific. So I would say like an interdimensional being is a type of ultra terrestrial. In other words, like um, we've talked fairies in the past. A fairy may also be a type of ultra terrestrial. Some people also try to, to classify them as elementals. And we may be talking like one and the same thing here. You know, are we using all these different terms to describe the same thing? But I would say in this, in this type of sense that an ultra terrestrial would be like anybody from that isn't that isn't in our plane of existence right now, but is also on this planet. And then uh, you would have different categories of that. It's like your interdimensional beings or your elementals or whatever, but they're all types of ultra terrestrials. Just like, um, like if you just took, you know, our planet as we normally see it, an earthling, we're all earthlings, you know. Some of us are American, some of us are European, you know, some of us are African, right? Um, so, you know, those are kind of all of our different, categories and you can even split it up you know further from that some are men some are women um you know some are from ohio some are from you know some are from rhode island or chicago or um you know some have blonde hair some have black hair i mean you know you could break it all down into all these different things um but we're all from earth i guess you could even look at earth and break it up into human dog cat i think you get the idea though all right, last couple comments. Let me take a look. Um, oh, um, 
Alina, in the book of Enoch, extraterrestrials are known as the Watchers, right? So debatable as to what the Watchers are. Um, you know, they could be extraterrestrials. They could be ultra-terrestrials. Uh, they could be angelic beings of some sort. They could uh, they could be interdimensional beings. It could be the Anunnaki. You know, there's um, there's a lot of different theories. That would be a whole... Um, it'll be a whole class in and of itself. So, um, and, and thank you, Nicole. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, Jen, uh, had my own little supernatural event over here. So, all right. So, um, Sarah, you know, I'm going to save this question here for the uh, monthly Q and a, how about that? about my hypnosis session. So those listening to the podcast version of this later, if you want to know about my hypnosis session and what I encountered there, uh, please sign up for the Connected Universe Portal, connecteduniverseportal.com, 30-day free trial. You can join this weekly interactive class, of course. And... Uh, Again, we will not have a class next week because I will be in Los Angeles. So join us the week after that. Uh, I'm going like every other week here right now. Yes, because I will be around the week after that. But then the following week um, will be Hauntlanta. And am I coming or going? <laughs> I have to look at a calendar. Yeah, because... Um, yeah, okay. So the following week will be when I am returning from Boulder, hopping in a car, and heading down to Atlanta. So we're going every other week here for a little while, and I do apologize that. It's just my scrap, my travel schedule this month. So, But I'll try to intersperse it with other things, such as we have the uh, the behind-the-scenes footage coming from uh, from the Shadow or for the Shadow Dimension. Uh, that'll be up this weekend. Of course, the monthly Q&A will be up this weekend as well. So you have two videos coming out this weekend. All right, everybody, take care. Have a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Till next time, time really exists.